Want to advertise your business in a cost-effective way? It's time to give podcast advertising a try. Research shows a high rate of podcast listeners made a purchase as a result of an ad they heard on a podcast. Visit podbean.com slash brands to launch a cost-effective podcast advertising campaign in minutes. That's P-O-D-B-E-A-N dot com slash brands. Welcome to Yolitics, the home of cold beer and hot takes on Texas politics. All right, everybody, welcome back uh, for another edition of Yolitics. Jason Wheeler here with Jason Whiteley. Jason, what are you drinking today? My friend, I'm having a uh, Hans Pils, a Pilsner. Hans Pils. It is okay. from the uh, Real Ale Brewing Company, which is down in Blanco, Blanco. How do you say it? Blanco or Blanco? Blanco. Blanco. So it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be Blanco. We all know that the word's really supposed to be Blanco. You, you couldn't hear my uh, eight-year-old just walk by. He, he's in the Spanish school. He said, "It's Blanco, Dad." <laughs> Did you hear him? It's Blanco. Yeah, I, I heard, heard something Blanco. in the background. You know, it, it, your eight-year-old has it uh, right. Uh, it's all the adults in Texas who who purposely mess up that what, word and call it Blanco. What do you? Let me let me get this open, man. I'm I'm kind of thirsty. What uh, What are you having? Uh, I am uh, drinking one from Texas oldest craft brewery. Do you know who that is? Um, yeah. I should know it, and when you say it, I'll you know You do it. know this. Who is it? Yeah, it's uh, St. Arnold. St. Arnold. I have a St. Arnold yeah. in my uh, refrigerator uh, That's waiting the, for this a happened to be, This one happened to be in there waiting for the same thing. This is the uh, Tropical and Citrusy Juicy IPA. Yeah, you do a lot of IPAs. I know that you like... Yeah, I know that you like when I say citrusy and talk about the different notes in the beer. Yes, so yes. Uh, I pulled this one out straight for just for you. Uh, you know, I, I was look, thinking about it, though, and I should have had today, and I uh, didn't get it ahead of time. Have you heard of this uh, Black is Beautiful beer? I, I haven't heard of it, and it's it's kind of apropos for our guest, but where, where is this from? It is a stout, uh, and the recipe comes from a San Antonio brewery, okay? It's called Weather, Weathered Souls Brewing Company. Uh, they put this out last year. They put out this recipe for other breweries, uh, and basically the idea behind this is they ask that the breweries, if they're going to make this particular beer, that they find an entity to donate to, a local organization uh, that supports equality and inclusion. Uh, so it really is this movement that sort of started. We're going to have to have them on the podcast. In fact, it's this movement that has started. And at last count that I saw on the site there, they were up to 1,192 breweries uh, that are doing wow. this. And I think it was in 50 countries. I mean, it was it, it has gone far and wide. I haven't heard of another initiative like that. No, it's uh, I, oh, no, it was 22 countries. They're in all 50 states, 20 countries and 1192 breweries. Uh, wow. They've done a documentary. I mean, this thing has really just taken off. Uh, and they you know, it's something that one of these things that started small with, you know, an individual place and they found a way to make it bigger and bigger and bigger. And that hmm. does fit with our guest today. Yeah, absolutely. But but before we get to uh, our guest, uh, this Hans Pils is uh, I'm a Pilsner guy. I'm a lighter guy. Yeah. You're the IPA guy, but this is fantastic, man. You, you know what's funny is I think I am more of a Pilsner guy. Uh, <laughs> You're just showing off I here. Keep on, showing off. No, what? I just I, I just keep on getting the, these things, and and this one's good. It just this tastes like grapefruit to me. It tastes like a grapefruit drink. Wow, like that's dangerous. You know that's that, dangerous. That, yeah, it could be dangerous since uh, you spend most of your day yeah, with just, your feet in the pool. Out tastes, there. 
Yeah, it tastes like punch, you know, and and then there you go. We'll get you an umbrella for that drink, man. <laughs> I, I'm excited about our guest today, and, and we kind of alluded to him just a moment ago. Um, but I've been trying to book this guest since January, and we all know what happened in January with what happened mm-hmm. at the Capitol. Then February came. We're trying to rebook him for February. Then the ice storm came. That blew things up. And then March came. And, and, he, and he's a busy guy. He's a super busy guy. It, it wasn't us. Our schedule's wide open. I mean, you, you tell me when you're available, we'll book you. Uh, but it's his schedule that is, is so tight. Here we are in April, finally having him on. His name is Dr. Brian Williams. Uh, he's a medical doctor, Brian Williams. And he was a trauma surgeon at Parkland Hospital back on July, July 7th of 2016 when the... Uh, police officers were shot and killed and started coming into the emergency room there in Parkland. And and he's going to talk about this in, in just a moment, but he, he since moved, he left us in Texas and he moved to the great white North way up to Chicago, where he now teaches at the university of Chicago, Harris school of public policy. And because of that, he's kind of hard to book right now, Jason. Mm-hmm. Um, but what he's talking about is uh, you know, it, he doesn't have to be in Dallas, per se, or Chicago or any other place. Uh, what he's talking about is something that's going on uh, across this country. You know, I saw this snippet in USA Today uh, not long ago, and it really stood out to me. Uh, it was an analysis uh, that was uh, put out, and it says that black men and black boys ages 15 to 34 make up just 2% of the nation's population, but they were among 37% of gun homicides uh, in the year that they were looking at, one of, uh, a recent year. Uh, 2% of the population, 37% of gun homicides. That's a staggering figure when you think about that's it. That's unbelievable. And, and that's what we're spending this uh, episode talking about. The, the topic of, uh, or the title rather, of uh, today's episode is called Race, Violence, and Medicine. And that's also the name of Dr. Brian Williams's podcast, Race, Violence, and Medicine. It's also the name of his upcoming memoir. And there is, uh, you know, nothing better to describe what we're about to dive into here in this episode. Mm-hmm. So uh, the first question here, Dr. Williams, is where do they all intersect? Well, when I think about my day-to-day job as a trauma surgeon and where I've worked in Atlanta, Dallas, and now in the south side of Chicago, I think the medicine part is pretty easy to uh, pick up. Um, as far as the violence, trauma surgery, I do a lot of gun violence. I also do a lot of, you know, unintentional injuries that people suffer, say car accidents or uh, at the work workplace. And then race, by my choosing to work at hospitals that primarily serve underserved communities, which are particularly communities of uh, black and brown patients, uh, I saw the racial disparities in my work. So they intersected just based on my day-to-day work, between racial disparities, the violence that comes with dealing being a trauma surgeon and medicine, just by the fact that I am a medical doctor. So it just kind of had a sort of ring to it that encapsulated everything that I stand for, but everything that I do as a professional as well. Can you kind of hone in there on that racial disparity when we talk about gun violence and give us a, a better idea of what you mean? Sure. So, you know, 24 hours after we finished recording this uh, podcast, 50% of the firearm homicides in the United States will be young black men. So when we consider gun violence, there are several categories. We think about suicides, homicides, intimate partner violence, Uh, but in the urban areas where I've worked, uh, Atlanta, Dallas, and now Chicago, 
in urban areas, the firearm deaths are predominantly homicides and are predominantly young black men. So that's what I'm seeing day to day. And for me as a black uh, male doctor, uh, I feel a certain uh, connection with the victims and their families that really motivates me to get up on my, out of bed every day to continue to do the work I do despite the incessant uh, tragedy. So for me, I want to take my experience, my expertise, and also my personal history and do what I can to try to really eliminate these disparities in, in gun violence. And I will say that I'm not here to eliminate gun ownership. That's a separate discussion altogether. But the violence that comes from firearms, that is something I'm working to eliminate. Well, how do you do that? Well, that is a, it's such a complicated issue, right? Because when we talk about gun violence, it's hard to disentangle that, what it means to own firearms. Mm -hmm. So it is a complicated discussion to have. So for me, I'm always trying to hammer home the point, look, we can have this discussion about gun violence and disentangle it from focusing on the guns themselves. Because that's a totally different path when it comes to identity and constitutional rights. But for us to allow people to live safely within their communities, no matter where they are, we can talk about violence and what contributes to that violence. And as a doctor in the hospital, what I see is really just a barometer of what's going on in the community. So when a gun violence victim comes in through the emergency room doors, what's happened upstream from that is more important than what I can do as a surgeon. So what is it going on in the communities that leaves it prone to violence, economic disparities, housing disparities? That is where we need to focus our efforts and time. So for me, I'm taking my experience and trying to educate folks that work in that space that can possibly make changes such as public officials that write policy, uh, business owners that want to invest in communities, nonprofits that are doing work. So I feel my, myself more as um, an, an educator in that respect, uh, not necessarily a boots on the ground person to eliminate that sort of gun violence. Uh, to use a, a little bit of jargon from, from your world, uh, I would imagine that a lot of people treat it like triage, though. They want to run toward the end result, which is the gun violence, the trauma that comes out of that. Are people listening? Are people in power listening when you're telling them, no, we need to focus on housing and on economic inequality and these other things because these are the root causes of this? Well, I, I, that's, that's so important right there because those are not separate issues. They're all interconnected. So if you take a zip code around Dallas or in Chicago and just look for, okay, what are the healthcare disparities in this area? You'll probably find late stage cancer diagnoses, uncontrolled diabetes, uncontrolled hypertension. Okay, where's the violence occurring? Oh, the gun violence is occurring in the exact same zip codes. Mm. Where are the housing disparities? Same zip codes. Education, same zip codes. So yes, these officials may be talking about housing and education and infrastructure. But if you look at the bigger picture, step back, keep asking why, 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 you will see that they're all interconnected and they're affecting the, the same communities. The communities that I see in the hospital suffering from diseases and violence. That's why I'm just using a megaphone. Look, here's what I'm seeing. I know you're working on it, but let's work together to, to end this. And really in the end, if I could put myself out of a job, that would be great. That is a utopic hmm. uh, vision is to put myself out of, out of a job. And I'll work on that until 
I'm no longer able to work, actually. Hmm. Dr. Williams, I was looking through your Twitter feed, and, and I noticed uh, a, a couple things really stood out to me. And you quoted a doctor, I believe, in St. Louis, Missouri, who had a quote that said, we're just fixing holes that bullets are creating. We're not preventing anything. Gun violence, in your opinion, is a public health problem just as much as a pandemic is, huh? Yeah, it definitely is a public health problem, but I also feel that the public health approach is not sufficient to uh, end this issue of gun violence. And, you know, we probably heard comparisons to seatbelt laws and helmet laws and how the public health approach led to reduction in deaths. But when you talk about gun violence, that's a completely different beast we're discussing. If you get in your car and don't buckle your seatbelt, that is a binary decision. You say, yes, I will, or no, I won't. You put on the helmet, same thing. Yes, I will, or no, I won't. But when you talk about gun violence, there are so many other issues to discuss. There is identity about owning a gun. There is the constitutional right to own a gun. There are the different types of gun violence, whether it's suicides or intimate partner violence or mass shootings or homicides. And each of those will, will require a different sort of approach to get to the root cause of, of what's leading to that sort of violence. So yes, it's a public health problem, but it will require much more than a public health approach to solve it. I know that this is something that's probably been you know simmering with you for a long time as far as it being a big issue. Uh, I want to take you back, though, to July of 2016 when we had the uh, there was a Black Lives Matter uh, uh, rally that was held in downtown Dallas. At the end of that, we had uh, someone in a parking garage uh, who took aim at uh, people down below, specifically police officers. Uh, It was an ambush. Five officers were killed in that ambush. Uh, You oversaw the team at Parkland Hospital and you were personally in there working on these officers. And you said that that really changed you? That whole event changed you. Can you tell us how that changed you? Did that give you uh, sort of the, the the wind in your sails to go, I'm going to put myself out there and become, you know, you become known as an activist surgeon? Yeah, so 7-7 is, I mean, it's still not I think about every day. And it's the worst night of my career And it's, it's, I mean, you know, it's been four and a half years for many people. Many people have probably forgotten about it, but it's something that's still with me. And I think about it all the time. And it has certainly been a transformative uh, event in my life. Now, I will say, you know, you're getting me now four years later. It's been an evolution and a process. I didn't flip a switch and say, okay, now I'm a different person. Uh, But what happened after that event was I really had to, think about what my role was in, uh, as a doctor in the hospital, what my role was in society and how I'm contributing to making this world a better place. And uh, I had some conflicting emotions about um, policing and, and systemic racism that were kind of, they're definitely mixed up with that event. And how am I as this black doctor caring for these white police officers that were targeted by a black shooter at a Black Lives Matter protest. Uh, what does that mean to me personally? But what do I do with it afterwards? And uh, I will say, I mean, I was lost for a long time. I didn't didn't know what I should be doing. I felt that the work I was doing in medicine was insufficient to make a difference. Although I, you know, I felt I was doing good work in the hospital, 
um, but to have a larger impact on society, I felt I could do more. I just did not know what that was. Uh, so I fumbled around for a long time before I kind of fell into what I am now, where I feel more comfortable talking about my experiences, talk about what that meant to me and what I'm going to do with it. Because when these things happen to us, and we all probably have something in our lives that have really made us question our, our existence, you can either integrate that into your lives and move forward, or you can let it define you. And I've chosen to not let it define me. Mm-hmm. And as much as I tried to run from 7-7, no matter where I go, people, re- people remind me of that event. And I don't say that as a complaint. It's just that I, I realize how powerful um, the, the event was, particularly the press conference that occurred. It, 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 it touched a lot of people. And even to this day, when I meet some people, they'll say, you know, Dr. Williams, I saw your press conference that day after the shooting. Now I have to remind them, like, that wasn't my press conference. That was 45 minutes of seven people talking. But the one part that resonated was two minutes where I spoke and people remember that. So the reaction was something I was not prepared for. Um, I certainly did not want it. I was definitely a media avoidant person at that point, but it has come to now. It's like, okay, Brian, this is the path you're on. You can either use it to do good or you can hide back in your shell and do nothing. So I've chosen to put myself out there. Well, well, Dr. Williams, I I don't want to, you know, keep bringing this up, but it it is important. And the words you selected in the hours after these police officers came into the emergency room really resonated. And I do want to play a clip for our audience that that may or may not remember this from five years ago. Um, You just to set the stage, you this is a Parkland hospital and everyone was wanting to know how the police officers were doing, what their uh, uh, prognoses uh, were. And there was a, uh, a table with five, six, seven doctors up there, and you were right in the middle of them uh, as one of the uh, attending physicians. And you spoke from the heart, and here's a clip of what you had to say. I understand the anger and the frustration and distrust of law enforcement, but they are not the problem. The problem is the lack of open discussions about the impact of race relations in this country. And I think about it every day that I was unable to save those cops when they came here that night. It weighs on my mind constantly. This killing, it has to stop. Black men dying and being forgotten. People retaliating against the people that are sworn to defend us. We have to come together and end all this. Before we zoom out and talk about the a little bit more of the wider stuff here, I do want to ask about the anatomy of that night because I remember covering this and it was one officer shot. Then there were three officers shot and then it was changed to five officers and seven officers, then nine. I think the total number, if my recollection is correct, is something like 14 police officers were shot. Some, Most, I believe, went to Parkland. Some went to Baylor there in East Dallas. Uh, but most landed in your emergency room. Can you tell us what you remember about the nine anytime you know, anyone shot, it's horrible, but you start seeing one, two, three, four, multiple police officers coming in. Where were you and and, and what what was that like? So as a level one trauma center, Parkland has a team in the hospital 24-7 to deal with uh, 
acts of violence and major, major injuries. So there's always one trauma surgeon that's in the hospital. And that, that night I was on along with a team of nurses and other doctors who were there. Uh, when the pager went off that there were, that there was already an officer there. In fact, it was just a gunshot victim and that there were more on the way. Uh, at the time, it's just, I just go back on my training. It's gunshot victim. I've been training to handle this. The team knows what to do and we go into action. The thought that these were police officers never entered into um, my thought processes that evening. So I fell back on my training and I mean, maybe some of you are former law enforcement or former military or any, any kind of activity, music, sports, when things happen, you don't think about it. You just do what you've been trained to do, which is what I did. And things happened very rapidly. Within, within minutes, we had several officers that were there and the, the ER was overrun by extra personnel, including Dallas police officers and hospital police. So it was definitely a, a different scene there than was usual for a trauma activation. Uh, but at the time, that, that was just background noise to me. I was hyper-focused on, okay, here's an officer that's dying. I need to do what I can to, to save this individual. And it didn't dawn on me until later that these were actually police officers. I kind of thought, my gosh, there's police officers being shot. That's odd. And then moved on to do my work. Um, so I, I, I think that people may think that we were in there like, oh my gosh, the cops coming in that are shot. It was, no, these are professionals. They know what they're supposed to do during a disaster. And they just do the work. As the night progressed and things slowed down, certainly the reality that there were officers that were injured became part of the discussion. Mayor Rawlings came by, Chief Brown showed up. I mean, it was obvious that this was an event that was much different than other mass, uh, mass shootings. But from the beginning, it was just, this is another disaster. Parkland is trained for this. We all know what to do. Let's just go to work. And so you did that, but you know, how long does it take before you sort of process through it and this you know, hits you like a ton of bricks? Well, uh, in any disaster, usually the first few minutes is is pretty busy. And then after that, things slow down. And there was a point in the evening where we had three deceased officers and we had several others that had non-lethal injuries. But I went to talk to one of the families of one of the officers that died, which is a conversation I want to get right every single time because none of us expects to wake up one day and to lose someone close to us. Mm. So when I deliver this news, I do not want to add trauma on top of an already traumatic event. Uh, I was also aware of the unique characteristics of this event with the police officers being shot and the rally downtown. Uh, but after I spoke to the family and delivered the news, I left the room where they were, uh, they were in a private room by themselves. I left the room and that's when it kind of hit me. I just, I had a moment there where I could go back into the trauma center and continue my routine work. Uh, and again, we were past the critical phase of the event, uh, but I took a left and went down this back hallway where there was nobody there. And I'd never been there before. And I leaned up against the wall and I slid down the wall and I had my head in my hands and my elbows on my knees and I started crying. And I, I don't cry. I have not cried in, before then. I don't know how long, it's just not something I do or did. And it, that's when it hit me. I can't explain what it was. There was no 
nothing that triggered it. Just all of a sudden, I just had this outpouring of emotion. And uh, I got up, I was probably down for maybe 30 seconds before I got up and said, Brian, you have to go back to work. This is a disaster. You are needed. Get up and go back to work. And that's what I did. I went back and I think all of us in healthcare, we don't get to stop when things go rough. Uh, patients count on us, the team counts on us. And I did my job for the rest of that night and the next day along with the team. But from that point on, there was definitely uh, a shift in me personally and professionally. The event had impacted me in ways that then I could not articulate, but I knew I was changing from that point, uh, point on. And for the next few days, I avoided the media. I didn't watch TV, no news. Uh, this was a this was the dominant news story, and it was a common uh, constant trigger of the night, and I didn't want to relive it, so I kind of avoided everything until the press conference on Monday, and that's when everything changed. So, so let's talk about race. We've talked about violence in medicine. Let's talk about race for a moment. Um, it's it's been five almost five years now since the ambush of these Dallas police officers, and yet here we are watching a criminal trial. Uh, and Minneapolis play out, um, has, has much changed when it comes to race? It, it, it doesn't seem it to me, but, but you probably have a better uh, idea on that. Yeah, when I, it's after um, the, the Chauvin trial and after George Floyd was killed and the protests, I remember I was watching television that night with my wife, and it was a night that they overran the police station in Minneapolis, I believe, if I'm correct, and it was on fire. And I was absolutely, I was terrified. I was, this can get bad really quickly because I was immediately back on 7-7 thinking about similar events after, a, uh, after an incident like that. And that's what I thought, it's been four years and what has really changed? Um, I, I, I have to believe we can continue to move to get better. It will be glacial. The change may not happen in my lifetime, but I feel I have to do something to contribute to the change. And I feel in 20, after 2020, there is a broader um, coalition, if you will, of voices that are speaking out about racism, uh, speaking out about violence and willing to at least have the discussion but really move towards making some change. So when you ask it has, has much changed, uh, I think it has changed, but in, certainly not changing as quickly as many of us are like, myself included. But if we continue to move in this right direction, I don't know if we'll ever get to an end point, but I just hope that things are better for my daughter when she is an adult than they are now, that she can be valued for who she is as a person, what she can contribute to society and that racism will have less of an impact on her life as a person and as a professional than it's having on mine and my ancestors. Yeah, that really drives you. I know uh, I've heard you talk about your daughter before. She's what, like nine, eight now? She's 10 going on 10. 18. That's right. <laughs> Been there, done that. Uh, you know, it, I, one of the things that really touched me that you had said before is that, you know, you, you always try to model behavior for your daughter. 
because you are trying to make it better for this next generation and the ones that follow and how, you know, let's say you're in a restaurant, you see some officers eating, you routinely will have her with you and go over and pick up their tab and thank them for what they do. Uh, and it's a, a twofold purpose that you do that. One is for her and the other is for the officers. Can you explain that? Yeah, so and I'm a military veteran and frequently when I was out in uniform, strangers would buy my lunch or pick up my tab for certain items. So when I, as a civilian, uh, I've tried to carry over that same sort of ethos to show thanks to those who serve. And uh, for me, I see a lot of police officers and I thought the least I can do is if I see them out for lunch, buy their lunch or dinner. Uh, for the longest time, I would do that secretly. I would just, I would grab the uh, server, say, hey, I'll get that tab. Don't tell them it's me. And I would just do that and just mm. kind of be like the, the, the secret Santa, if you will. But as my daughter got older and started watching me, I really thought, you know, she should see me interact positively with law enforcement. I mean, because I uh, did not have that sort of trust that they were looking out for my best interests. And I know I still have that, 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 that distrust still kind of exists within me, but I thought, okay, I need to get past that. I need to be a good parent. So let's my, let's my daughter see like, at least a good interaction. So I would have her watch me pick up the tabs. Uh, I would introduce her to police officers um, whenever I could, just to see the uniform and know that that is a safe place to go if she is ever uh, in trouble. I want her to feel that it's a safe place she can go if she's ever in trouble. Um, so that was what I did. And I don't even know if it's working. You know, I'm, I'm a parent. I'm just trying to do what I think is best. Uh, I'm trying not to mess it up. But I felt if I could do this with some degree of what is not best for me, what is best for society, what's best for my daughter, maybe it could possibly could uh, make a difference. And I still do that to this day. And wasn't part of the calculus also on the other end that you're not in your white coat, you're not there as a, a trauma surgeon, uh, isn't part of the calculus also, let me have a positive interaction with the police officers and let them see me as a black man having a very positive interaction. Yeah, there was, there was definitely some secondary uh, uh, gain that, hopefully that, that they would see me approach them and say, I want to do this for you, no, no matter how simple it is to say, this, this is a black man coming to do this favor for you. You don't know me. You don't need to know me. But hey, I just want to say thank you. Uh, and I, again, I thought about my own experience. Whenever that happened to me, it just kind of made me feel a little bit better that day. Uh, it made me feel better about the job I did in the military, knowing that sometimes you're asked to do things that aren't uh, best for you or your family, but I was doing something that served the country. Police officers are doing something that serves society. They are ambassadors for their communities. And I feel we should treat them, treat them that way. And the least I could do was buy lunch, let them meet my daughter, and maybe wait, maybe my daughter will grow up to be a chief of police or a mayor or something and treat the police officers uh, with a sort of, uh, I think, respect that I think is lacking in many reasons for, for a variety of reasons, which we can go into. But again, they, they do choose to serve. They are ambassadors for the community and we should work towards making that a more collegial and collaborative relationship, not an antagonistic one. Dr. Williams, you're an ambassador for medicine. Obviously, you mentor a lot of uh, younger doctors, but I'm curious about why you think there aren't more black physicians. 
Yeah, this is something that's still ongoing, the, the, the dearth of black physicians, particularly black males within medicine. Um, black women are doing pretty well, but black men, there's been a steady decrease over the past 40 years, which continues to this day. And the reason that there is uh, uh, a lack of black males is I think for a number of reasons. One is the, the what they call the pipeline. How do we get black men into medical school, which starts very young. It's education, it's being interested in STEM, it's getting into college, having appropriate mentors along the way. So that pipeline has several areas that are quote unquote leaky. So we need to fix that pipeline. Now the next step is that when they're actually in medicine is being around uh, mentors that can guide them through the process going into institutions that are uh, supportive and accepting of, of having people of color, but also making sure that they thrive, not just represent a number, but also thrive within these institutions. That's part of the uh, challenge as well. So it's, it's gonna require leadership at a number of points along the way to increase the number of black men in medicine. And I feel that's it's not just a benefit to those entering the profession. There's plenty of evidence that shows it has been a benefit to patient care. It is a benefit to organizations. Uh, it's benefit to the bottom line. Uh, so when one group benefits, everyone is uplifted. No one has to lose something by increasing the number of black men in medicine. So that's what a part of my job is just mentoring uh, and doing what I can as a I guess I'm a kind of a gatekeeper now as a fellowship director where I can recruit people to come to my institution to train. And it's kind of be a, a good role model to say, yeah, you can come here to the University of Chicago, uh, train and thrive in medicine, and uh, you will be part of the family. Yeah. Isn't getting more young black men into that pipeline part of fixing that systemic problem that you were talking about earlier? Uh, because we talk about these disparities with everything from housing to health care. And something that really stood out to me that you, you have talked about previously is that when you became a doctor, you found that it helped uh, certain populations in the hospital, uh, families who you said had been overlooked and ignored. Right. So the response I've received from families, particularly black families, uh, gun violence victims, when they, they've seen me, sometimes it's, it's, it's reverential in, in a way and made me extremely uncomfortable because I did not feel that I was anything special or deserving of that sort of attention. Uh, but I understand now how important it is for them to see someone like me taking care of them or their family members, mm. because I may have been the first black doctor that they've seen in their entire lives. And that just says a lot about the power of, of race nowadays, that just being in the room and saying nothing can have impact. And it also shows the, these young kids that, yes, this is something you can as aspire to be. Now, having said that, being seen and being a mentor is not enough, just as you mentioned. There are so many systemic issues that still exist that will make it difficult for even the most motivated and the, the brightest person to still get into medicine. And those same systemic issues that you mentioned, housing, education, or things that overlap with my job in healthcare, which is why we go back to the beginning, right? We go back to the beginning where if we can address these issues on a collaborative communal basis, then we can fix 
a lot of problems, not just gun violence, not just healthcare disparities, education, housing, but we can also increase the number of black doctors that go into med or black boys that go into medicine and think about it, what else can we achieve? If communities are less violent, businesses may want to invest. That increases, that's money right there, right? Businesses invest, schools have a better tax base, education goes up. I mean, I can go on and on about all the benefits of this. We just step back and see like the possibilities. If we can look at the root causes of these systemic issues and just get beyond the, the, the part about wanting to protect what's ours and see what's best for everyone, realize that when one group benefits, we all will benefit. And going back to how we uh, began this podcast about specifics of what can be done, one thing that I read that I had never heard of before in 31 years of television news is uh, about violence interrupters. These are people who actually go into neighborhoods to figure out ways to mediate you know, things before they turn into street fights and something worse. You guys are using these in Chicago, yes, right? Yes, we have our our violence recovery, call it VRP, violence recovery program. And these are individuals from the community. Uh, many are former members of street gangs. So what if they have a relationship with the people in the community that I certainly don't have? People assume that because I'm black, I can walk up there and I'm suddenly embraced. Uh, that's not the case, you know? Uh, I'm still an outsider, uh, but we have our violence interrupters that are from the community, have the connections, and can talk to different people uh, to prevent escalation of violence. So for example, when I was on call last, we had two gunshot victims come in from opposing sides of the gunfight and the violence interrupter showed up and said, okay, this will escalate because of my patience. They start making the phone calls to individuals to try to mediate and prevent it from getting worse. I can't do that, right? All I can do is wait in the hospital for the next person to show up. They can actually go upstream and prevent them from coming to the hospital in the first place. That's why they're important. And that's also the importance of us being able to go outside the hospital upstream to intervene at the root cause of all these systemic inequalities that we have discussed today. I truly believe and know that if we really focused on that, we could collectively make a difference. What I take away from that is it's going to take a lot more than just the surgeon activist that everybody still recognizes from that news conference that day, right. that everybody sort of has their own role to play in this, even if it seems like a minor role. Right. I mean, I think you're, you're, this podcast, you, you have a role too, right? Someone will listen to this and may learn something that they didn't know, which may influence how they do their day to day. I mean, we're all playing small parts in this. You know, I tell people that we have these moments where you will have influence and never know. No one will come back and tell you how you impacted their lives. And if you just keep doing things every day, trying to make the world a better place, something small you did can have tremendous impact downstream. Hmm. Dr. Williams, when is your book coming It'll out? Probably come out in 2022. Uh, publishing is a it's a slow process, and I did things backwards. I wrote the book first, and then did the proposal. Hmm. the proposal first, then the book. Therefore, I'm on their schedule. They're not on mine. <laughs> that is interesting. All that right. is interesting. Well, well th 
Thanks for working us into our schedule as well, too, man. Uh, and we miss you in Texas. You were here almost 10 years until you took off up to the Great White North up there. I hope you don't get too cold up there in, uh, well, in y'all Chicago. Y'all had a bit man. of cold down there recently, too. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we did. <laughs> Dude, don't talk about it. Don't Still talk a sore about subject down here. Uh, the podcast is Dr. called Dr. Race, Williams. Violence, yeah. and Medicine. Uh, the book will be called The Same, which makes it nice and easy, right? Yes, Race, Violence, and Medicine. Thanks so much for your time. We really appreciate it. Thank you. You all stay safe. So Dr. Brian Williams has uh, fled Dallas uh, for for Chicago. Chicago has a lot of great things going for it. I I don't know if I'd want to go live there, though, especially after, you know, going through what we just went through, which he alluded to there. The the little weather snap that we dealt with here was enough to convince me that I do not need to live up north ever again. Yeah, No doubt. And one thing that I didn't know about until, until I started researching this was about violence interrupters. And when I asked the question, we're all on Zoom here. And when I asked the question, you were shaking your head. Yes, you'd heard of these before, huh? No, I hadn't. Oh. I mean, I've seen the okay. I've seen the term. I've I've seen the term, but I didn't know it was like a common thing. Out I had there. no idea. You know, the, the people who go into neighborhoods to you know, to re- reduce gun violence—that that's phenomenal to me. But there's something that, that Dr. Williams wrote on uh, on his Twitter account that that really you know struck me. He says, you know, there's so much we can do to prevent gun violence in the U.S. Just as we have made cars safer. We can make communities safer by focusing efforts on investing in healthier communities, targeting high-risk individuals for homicides and mental health services. Uh, this is a crisis. He's exactly right. And and when you when you pull this back and say, listen, this is not about a, a Second Amendment issue. We're not taking guns away. Um, but this is something we can still solve. It, it's the same, I, I presume, as it was with cars back in the 60s and 70s, saying, uh, we're not taking cars away. Just, just you know, buckle up on this to make everyone safer on the road. So right, the, and finding and and maybe you know, uh, concentrating in certain uh, areas right. on certain roads. You know, back when you know, if if it were about making car safety better, you know, maybe you concentrated on areas where you had the most accidents. I think it's fascinating. You know what Dr. Williams says there about sort of overlaying the different layers of this and looking at how you know you have health impacts, you have economic impacts, you have gun impacts, and oddly they all just see, seem to keep on landing in those same zip codes. Those right same neighborhoods so clearly intervention is needed to figure out what is going wrong systemically he's not focusing in on one particular issue but it's systemically what's happening in those places and the challenge he also poses or not poses but presents rather is to to find more black male physicians like himself Mm -hmm. he said there are black women who are doctors but very few black men who are doctors so he he's really kind of charting the course uh, for a number of these things here. You just don't hear a lot of doctors who are taking on the issues like he is. Yeah, you know, and, and I find that interesting because he's also, he he does mentoring to help with that issue. Uh, and it, it all goes back to that whole thing of, this is one guy, you yeah. know, he's and, and he's been on these police review boards and he's been there in the operating room and he's been there helping along uh, these these young people who want to learn as as far as mentoring them. And he's using his megaphone to to call out an issue that is a big issue that's not getting enough attention. This is all coming from one person. And that's sort of, I think, what his whole point is here. And, and you know what we if we go back to the black is beautiful beer at the beginning, that was one brewery. It all starts with one person. So the message there is everybody has that something to give. You just got to give it. Yeah, absolutely. Way to bring it home, by the way, man. But uh, no, you're, you're exactly right. And the fact that he's doing this 
And you said, you know, one person. This is why he is so busy. This is why it was so Mm -hmm. damn hard for us to get this guy (laughs) on our podcast. But I am glad it's taken four months. I'm glad we finally got Dr. Brian Williams on here. Uh, I I hope that that you got something out of it as well, too. It, It was fascinating to hear him. He has a unique perspective. And it's, you know, we don't often go inside the emergency rooms. We don't often hear from doctors like him unless it's worst case scenario, unless, you know, we've been involved in in, in some incident as well, too, uh, which we hope, you know, nothing like that ever happens. But this is it's a good conversation to have. It's a dialogue that needs to start. And I'm glad this good doctor is finally doing that. And we want to thank everybody for listening. We would like for you to subscribe to our podcast. And if you'd like to hear more from Dr. Williams uh, while you're here, uh, you know, getting your podcast, look for it. It's called Race, Violence, and Medicine. We'll see you again next Tuesday. Don't forget, you can uh, look for new episodes of Yolitics every Tuesday. And we hope you subscribe as well. Take care.